Mm-hmm. I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. David, I kind of wanted to say Debatably Jewish Podcast this week. Welcome to Trafe, a Debatably Jewish Podcast. Yes. That's perfect, David. <laughs> what, what makes this week different than all other weeks? Well, so the Montreal Gazette, which is the large English paper in our fine city, mm-hmm. wrote an article about boycott, divestment, and sanction on campus. Sanctions, I believe. And uh, they referred to us and didn't really get the whole joke. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, to explain why we were in the paper, it's actually like a very long story. But I think what's more important is, yeah, the fact that the joke didn't land, that they were saying... Trafe is not actually a Jewish podcast. They describe themselves as only a debatably Jewish podcast. Now we've tried to reach out to the author. The author was not answering any of our emails or Twitters. I mean, I think it's pretty funny. Like, I'm happy to let it lie there. Yeah, all right. Do you feel like you're carrying this around with you, though? Yeah, the worst part of this is that there are people out there who don't get the joke. I think that actually hurts the most, more than the political ramifications or anything. Mm. I mean, I think that the fact that it's out there and the joke is not being understood makes it more funny to me. Yeah, all right. Like, I feel like it amplifies how much I like the joke. Um, More importantly than our brief moment of fame in the Montreal Gazette (laughs) is the fact that it is the annual funding drive for CKUT 90.3 FM. Yeah, I mean, for people whose only familiarity with CKOT is our reference at the end of the episodes, it's an amazing community radio station that's been active here, formerly affiliated with McGill University, and it's the same age as me. In wow. 1987, it started. That's very beautiful. Uh, the reason that we are mentioning this is because we record our show at CKUT. They've helped us out a lot. Uh, we we would... also have a show on CKUT once a month, the first Friday of every month at 11 a.m. Yeah, where we, we uh, broadcast regionally a sort of digest of different things we put out over the month. But but the point of this uh, mention is that we would like all our listeners to consider giving a few dollars, even one dollar, to be honest, uh, to CKUT. You can go to ckut.ca right now. It'll explain to you exactly how to donate, what donating does. It supports so many other amazing shows that are broadcast on CKUT. You have the Prison Radio Collective that broadcasts once a month. There's the Legalese show, uh, kind of a radical perspective on law that Sam, you were involved with for a period of time. Yeah, David, you're actually just mentioning all the shows that we share the Friday 11 a.m. time slot. Oh, that's very correct. I mean, there's there's so many other. There's Venus Radio. There's the Queer Core show. And then, David, there's also like the morning and afternoon kind of news shows. Yeah, and, and you have the known as Legal Radio Collective. There's so many fantastic shows that are made possible by CKUT. And we all really, really want this to continue and to continue the legacy of 20 nine years of amazing programming here so if anyone listening has even a couple dollars that they'd like to send over to keep us going keep the station going uh, we'd really appreciate it couldn't have said it better myself but before we tell everybody what we have on today's show sam is there anything that you want to talk about anything we should mention here yep it's been a few weeks since we actually got down to brass tacks and just had some regular conversation yeah it's true actually we haven't been in the studio like this in a while did you know that the one and only prime minister of canada celebrated the second day of Yom Kippur, and by second day, I mean the only day, um, (laughs) uh, at a synagogue in Westmount. Oh, were you there? I was not there. That is not the synagogue that I attend. Uh, How did you find out about it? Were there photos of him? Yeah, there's photos of JT oh, but wait, they just took, took taking pictures with everyone. On Yom Kippur in, in the shul, they took pictures? I mean... I mean, far be it for me to condemn them for such a thing, yes. but it just seems a little funny. That is quite heretical, actually. No, there are, there are pictures on the World Wide Web. 
That's some different. That's like a next level pandering, though, for <laughs> someone who's not Jewish to go to something like that. Uh, yeah, I actually think he delivered some kind of a speech too. Oh man, I don't want to know what was in that. Release the transcript, Sharshmaim. Uh, there is something that I want to talk about, but I don't really know if we have enough time today. Is it about Daredevil? <laughs> no, it's it's the, since since we have talked, I, you know, we both are reading the Jewish media all the time. Really? <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, I don't know. I just had this experience of feeling more disappointed with Jewish media than I regularly am. Uh, Not that I'm surprised or anything. I just felt palpably disappointed, which was the uniformity of coverage to this resolution that came out of UNESCO. Yeah, that was bad. And how consistently almost every single piece of Jewish media coverage made exactly the same claim, which was that this resolution was denying any relationship that Jewish people had to Jerusalem and was as such anti-Semitic. Did you have a chance to read the actual document? No, I didn't read the document. I just read through a bunch of the pieces. But I think it's funny that you're you're not even angry. You're like a parent who's just disappointed with the poor output of the Jewish press. I think I'm just disappointed by how across the board it was. And like every... There, there were maybe two or three reports I saw that coming from 972 Mag and Haaretz, things that are actually outside of North American Jewish press that we usually yeah, follow, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that had more details and was more specific with its coverage. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I, I did read the document and it was not my assessment. There were, there were a lot of things going on in this document, many that could be critiqued, but that specific claim that it was denying any relationship that Jewish people had to the city of Jerusalem was just not there. Yeah, it was pretty bad coverage. Anyway, Thumbs down to so, the Jewish press on this one. Yeah, and, and there's so much more that can be said about this, but I think we should move on for now. Maybe we can talk with someone a bit more about this in a later episode. Okay, David, I think we've talked for too long. Let's talk about what's on the episode. Oh, yeah. So we have two interviews for you today, in addition to our regular Shkoyach segment. One of the folks that we have on is Annie Cohen, who's a member of the British collective Judas, not Judas. Annie came on the show to talk about the Yom Kippur Ball that they organized recently, the history of the collective, and kind of the context of organizing around Jewish identity politic in Britain, the UK. Yeah, this is this is actually our second exemption of talking about things outside of this continent. Both times it's been for someone related to this organization from the UK. Because we uh, really like them. Yeah. The second interview is with uh, Sandy Fox, who's just started a new podcast called Vabertich, a all Yiddish feminist podcast that's on now its third episode, I believe. The interview with Sandy was really great, and folks should really check out her podcast and throw as much support as possible behind the work that she's doing there. Definitely. We'll have all the links of how to check out the podcast in the show notes. On what website, David? Trafepodcast.com. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 24th of Tishrei, 5777. Um, actually, before we start, is it Judas or Judas? Like, what's the correct pronunciation? Yeah, Judas. Okay, but, Judas. Uh, but we don't, we don't, I mean, it's a pun on Judas. Judas. Yeah. So one of the one of the ways we usually start these interviews is we we sort of ask the person that we're talking to to introduce themselves. So would you feel comfortable starting things off that way? Yes. 
Um, hi, I'm Annie Cohen. I'm one of the organisers of a lefty Jewish collective in London called Judas. I've been doing that for the past two years, since summer 2014. I've lived in London for most of my life. I'm involved in lots of other lefty political things as well. That's pretty much me. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, no problem. Good Shabbos. Well, it's not Shabbos. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Time difference. Yeah, we're dealing with uh, a little bit of a time, time is difference. Time so exciting and weird. <laughs> uh, we, we brought you on because we wanted to talk about the Yom Kippur Ball uh, that you folks recently organized. Uh, but before we got into all yeah. that, do you think we could start just talking a bit about where Judas came from, like how it started as a group? So I wasn't involved in the founding of Judas. I think that was 2005. It was founded by a couple of guys, one of whom is still in our kind of organizer circle it came from a point of disagreeing with a lot of the stuff that they, they saw in the mainstream of the Jewish community. Before, it was just a group of people who came together every once in a while to do, like, really amazing parties or sort of stunts and events. So I first heard of Judas because they got an Israel rally cancelled in 2012 by basically faking an email. And because a lot of the organizers are involved in the Jewish community. They just guessed who would be on this list, um, <laughs> pretended to be the board of deputies, and emailed everyone they knew would be on the email list to say, we can't do this, we're canceling this rally, we can no longer support the actions of the Israeli state. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, it was big enough that I heard about it and, and thought that was awesome. I met the others on the Gaza demos in London in 2014, there's a Jewish block and a bunch of us met up and then we kept wanted to do more stuff and we wanted to do stuff that wasn't just about Israel. We wanted to do more stuff about Israel too. And the kind of original Judas crew were there and everyone had heard of Judas and it's such a cool name and they'd done such cool stuff. So we decided to kind of re-found it. I call it Judas version 2.0. And so that's been that since 2014, we've had a kind of newer group and uh, we've been a lot more active. Yeah, that's been super clear from a distance, at least. Like online, it seems like your organizing is happening with more frequency. Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, I think it might also just be that that's maybe got a bit easier. I think maybe things have shifted a bit in the mainstream. I mean, because I was involved in like lefty Jewish activism before I was involved in Judas. Um, it was really hard, but that's kind of changed partly through discovering Judas, and partly I think just things have changed. We've we've been busy for the past couple of years, for sure. Yeah. Again, please correct me if I'm I have these false impressions via social media, but it does also seem like there's a focus towards kind of internal activism within the Jewish community, in addition to solidarity work around Palestine. Like it seems like, for example, the Yom Kippur Ball does seem like something that is focused on challenging the institutional Jewish community. Um, could you talk a little bit about that orientation and kind of? this newer generation of Jewish activists being interested in challenging the institutional community? Yeah, I mean, we definitely don't see ourselves as explicitly only a Palestine solidarity group. You know, we're not a one-issue group. We're a collective who have an interest in loads of other things. We refer to ourselves as diasporas. So this is, you know, this is another thing that people in Judas kind of bonded over and one of the things I think a lot of us are trying to reclaim is that you can be Jewish and secular, but not a Zionist, which isn't really a thing that much anymore. I feel like Zionism has claimed a lot of Jewish identity, unless you're religious, 
in, in which case you have something else to fall upon. But there's actually very long history of Jews who identified very strongly as Jewish on kind of an ethnic heritage ground, but weren't religious. So we're trying to kind of reclaim a political Jewishness that existed and was quite strong and hotly debated. And there were some really interesting ideas about Jewish autonomy, like Jewish nationhood and what that meant. And now it's Zionism has become the dominant thing and its actions against the Palestinians. So we're challenging those things. But then, I mean, the Yom Kippur Ball, and we, we held this gig on the anniversary or in the week of the anniversary of the Battle of Cable Street, you know, probably the most significant British Jewish event in history. Could you could and, you speak to that? Because I think that there might be a significant number of folks listening who... So it was um, in 1936, the British Union of Fascists, led by Oswald Mosley, tried to walk a huge demonstration of black shirt fascists down Cable Street, which was right in the middle of the sort of Jewish area of London. So it was really a very clearly anti-Semitic act. The police facilitated it, as they still facilitate fascist marches, and the mainstream Jewish institutions and institutions of the state just wanted to let it happen. But the local community, not only Jewish people, communists and all of the other people who lived in the area came out and stopped them and there was a huge fight on Cable Street and they prevented them. They didn't get to march to where they wanted to go. We've been wanting to do a young people ball for ages because they're just one of the most amazing things in Jewish anarchist and lefty history. But it seemed really appropriate for this event because, as I said, the Jewish institutions at the time, the Board of Deputies and the Jewish Chronicle, they urged... Jews not to come out and oppose the British Union of Fascists. They thought that if Jews were associated with anti-fascism and associated with communism, that anti-Semitism would be even worse. They would like, you know, be quiet, let the state deal with it, stay at home. And so everybody who came out and fought on Cable Street were also standing their ground against liberal institutions, not only against fascists. It's this weird thing that happens with a lot of radical history is that when it's 80 years later, I know that because I just did the event, um, <laughs> they suddenly all becomes like acceptable history. It's like how the same people who will glorify the partisan resistance during World War II will look at anti-fascist demonstrations now and go, oh, well, they're just as bad as the fascists. And this is what happens with the Battle of Cable Street as well. It's like, oh, you know, can look look at it in the past and glorified as this amazing anti-racist event and yet forget that those same institutions are against it in the same way that they will be now. So it just seemed like the perfect time to do something that is part of a long history of Jews kind of sticking their fingers up at the establishment and a history that we're seeking to continue, I guess. Yeah, I mean, speaking specifically about the Yom Kippur balls, I, I know the two of us have talked a lot about what their legacy is and ways that we could tap into that. Something that came up in a lot of those conversations is that the nature of the institutional Jewish community, like the Jewish establishment, has shifted over time. It's gone from being a sort of reactionary right-wing religious establishment to being a reactionary right-wing Zionist establishment. And I noticed on, on the event call-out, I don't know how serious it was, but you, were, you made a reference to changing a banner from saying, we don't believe in God, to saying we don't believe in the state of Israel, which I think was a fitting reference to this shift. I mean, I think one thing that I found through Judas that has both been good for me, and, and it's one of the reasons I think we've been successful and been able to grow, is that we're using a lot of humor. And that was a similar thing in the Yom Kippur Bulls. From 
what I know, the first Yom Kippur Ball was held in London in, I think it was 1888. So the most famous one, um, I think this was the 1888 one during a big strike, was on Yom Kippur. A ball was called by a Jewish communist called Benjamin Fagenbaum. And he gathered hundreds of people in this hall in the middle of the Jewish East End, banners everywhere, and he had a huge one up on this stage that said, there is no God. He kind of waited for the crowd to quiet, and he made a speech, and he said, the holiest day of the year, God is about to cast judgment on us, and if there is a God, he will certainly smite me down. He waited for one minute, and then a band started playing the Internationale, and everyone started dancing and eating and they had a big party. Can you please tell me that someone at your Yom Kippur Ball performed this ritual? So I ordered, <laughs> I used this party decorations website. I ordered <laughs> a huge banner that wished a happy 80th birthday to There Is No God. Um, but because I'm having a bit of a housing crisis, it got delivered to the wrong place. Oh, no. So I'm still trying to chase the up somewhere I own this banner, oh, no. um, which I'll, I'll use again. But so we made one that said, uh, God is over, like the Yoko Ono war is over banner. And we hung that behind the stage. Um, we didn't make the Israel one. I mean, this was the joke that, yeah, now if we really wanted to annoy the establishment, we'd be better off writing a banner that said we don't believe in Israel or something like that. But there were some Zionism, and Shminism and things floating around. That's but, another good slogan. <laughs> yeah, this, this one really made people angry. It was amazing. Uh, I'm just also thinking about the Yom Kippur Ball as sort of being this relic of a different time where the Jewish establishment was so heavily connected to religious order or religious establishment. Mm. And I know that this anniversary was sort of looking back and taking inspiration from this time. And I'm wondering what you think about the, the potential of mining those types of rituals and celebrations for uh, genuine attack now on the establishment now that it's shifted. I mean, I think I think one thing that, and at this time, there was a kind of older Jewish community who had been kind of emancipated into the mainstream middle class and become accepted and assimilated. And then in the 1880s, after horrific pogroms in Russia, there was a huge wave of Jewish immigration, you know, desperate refugee working class Jews who ended up in London in the sweatshops of the East End. And a lot of the more established Jewish community were really worried that all these immigrants were going to cast a bad reflection on them, you know, because they'd become kind of assimilated British Jews. And now there are all these other Jews who <laughs> they felt fitted the anti-Semitic stereotypes that they themselves tried to not be. And the establishment didn't really recognize the plight or didn't really seem to care about the plight of newer working class immigrants, just the very religious and cared more about God than the plight of working class Jews in the wealthier synagogues. There would be members of the congregation there who actually owned businesses that exploited their fellow Jews. So Jewish anarchists and socialists would do blasphemous things to upset the religious Jews in protest at the way that they ignored these things. So this kind of, you care more about God than you care about us. There were things like, I think, in, in some of the big strikes, there would be like ham sandwich marches or they would stand outside uh, on Shabbos eating bacon in front of the synagogue. And then these Yom Kippur balls would be on Yom Kippur. And I feel like there's something in going back to these traditions that were lost 
to the kind of anti-state, anti-establishment traditions that we have in the Jewish left, and there's so much of it, that we can also find things to turn to that are alternatives to what we have now. And I mean, before the Holocaust, Jews were among the most powerful challengers of nationalism, and now most Jews are nationalists. To be a bit more specific or a bit more clear, standing up for the right for everyone to live where they want to live, free from persecution, is an obvious alternative to requiring our own state and Jewish validity and safety being dependent on the state of Israel. And I feel like in reclaiming these old traditions, we can piss off the establishment and it's funny and it's fun and it's in some way liberating. But there's a message in all of there that's really powerful and that is true and does stand up to the narratives I think most Jews are brought up being told. It certainly does. So if you're living in greater Europe and you don't know what Judas is, which seems to be weird if you'd be listening to this podcast, but if for that one person out there, I'm thinking of you, <laughs> you should go check out the London Anarchist Book Fair this weekend and check out Judas's tabling. Yeah, this Saturday, the 29th. And for people who are living on this continent, if you want to follow all of Judas's future activities, we'll Judas, have David, Judas. Judas's future activities, we'll have uh, links in the show notes. It was really nice to chat with you both. Yeah, thanks again for, for chatting with us. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Trafe podcast. This is Aaron from Chicago. Uh, I was listening to the first episode 5777 on the alt-right as I was walking through Skokie, which is a largely Jewish suburb outside of Chicago, on my way to pick up my lulav and etrog. When it came to the shkoyach segment, same as always, I just had this visceral reaction to shout out in response to Sam and David's shkoyach to say, Chazak ubaruch which is the Sephardi equivalent of Yeshakoach. It means be strengthened and blessed. And so I want to give a Chazak Baruch to both of you, Sam and David, and to all the listeners, and keep fighting the good fight in 5777 and all the years to come. members of Judas do you think we're going to end up interviewing? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I hope we continue our overseas phone relationship. I agree. And for new listeners, we spoke with Joseph Finley, who I think is ex-Judas or affiliated loosely to Judas still, who talked to us about the context of anti-Semitism in the UK and a lot of the discussions around the Labour Party. Yeah, I think that was, that was a few months ago now, no? But just Google, don't Google, Go on to our SoundCloud or our website and find Joseph Finley. Yeah, uh, the next interview that you're about to hear is with Sandy Fox, who has started a great new podcast called Vaberteish. 
We checked in with her via Skype, and I actually was pretty excited about how crisp the sound quality was. Oh, yeah. She is definitely much more professional than both of us combined. Yes. She's using this fantastic home mic, and it just sounded great. Uh, but that being said, uh, enjoy the interview. My name is Sandy Fox, and I am the host of a podcast called Vibertych. It's a feminist podcast in Yiddish. And uh, it's a new podcast. It's very exciting. And then aside from that, I'm getting my doctorate at NYU and I study American Jewish history with a focus on summer camp, Zionist and Yiddish summer camps in the post-war period. In the spring semesters, I get to teach Jewish history at my alma mater, a super hippy-dippy liberal arts school called Eugene Line College, part of the new school, um, which makes me very happy. And I'm in Israel for the semester, so it's 10 o'clock at night here. <laughs> um, but I usually live in Brooklyn. Well, first of all, thank you for talking with us at 10 o'clock at night. Sure. And secondly, could you talk a little bit about the research that you're doing? I actually started graduate school studying Israel studies, and I was doing a lot of research on Israeli youth movements, specifically the Sofim, the Israeli scouts. And I, I did a project about the scouts and Young Judea, which is an American Zionist youth movement that I happened to grow up in. I became really frustrated in Israel studies because it was a really... It was a painful field to be in in many ways. It was facing very difficult questions and conversations every single day. And I just lost my heart for it. And at the same time became more interested in actually where I came from, which didn't occur to me growing up in a Zionist youth movement. I never talked about or never heard about my own, my own history, either speaking of Eastern European history, Ashkenazi history, or even just American Jewish history, the fact that my grandparents were all born in America, even some of my great-grandparents were born in America, right? So I sort of came to realize that I wanted to be studying American Jewish history and that that was where my heart was. And then when, I, when it came time to uh, pick a dissertation topic, I realized that I still had this passion for summer camp. The summer camp that I grew up in had a major impression on me, even as I now have disagreements with the education I got in that summer camp, which was very Israel-centric and very political. I still thought a lot about how that immersive space is this really powerful thing that can convince children and teenagers to be different people. And I could also, with that topic, combine my interest in camp with Yiddishism, looking at the Yiddish and socialist camps that existed from the 1920s onward, while also making this comparison with the Zionist camps. Because even though these are two different types of nationalism, the modes by which Jewish educators utilized them were very, very similar. So how did you get from doing that research to starting this podcast? Actually, the my interest in Yiddish precedes the research in a way. So Back when I was an Israel Studies PhD student, I tried to learn Arabic and just failed miserably. <laughs> but um, I needed to take a department exam in another language besides Hebrew. And my friend Naftali Edelman, who at the time, he was the founder of Yiddish Farm and at the time the director, he encouraged me to come to his farm and to learn Yiddish. For people who don't know, Yiddish Farm is a organic farm in upstate New York where they have Yiddish programs throughout the summer and even usually one in the winter, one in the spring. And it's an immersive Yiddish program. No English is spoken, no other languages. So I was intrigued because honestly, it kind of sounded like going back to camp, but being 24 um, <laughs> with other people in their 20s. And 
you know, I sort of figured, oh, maybe if I do two weeks of immersion, I can knock that language exam out of the way. I wasn't expecting to, I guess, fall in love with Yiddish, but I did. I just felt really hard <laughs> and also loved the Yiddish speaking community. And I continued to learn Yiddish because I loved it. And I basically, since I became somewhat fluent in Yiddish, I've wanted to create something. The people from the generation before me who run a lot of the Yiddish media would always encourage me to write, you know, write for the forwards, write for Offenschwell, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, after writing all day for my dissertation, it's kind of the last thing I want to do. So because I love podcasts so much and I just, I basically inhale podcasts all day long. It was just this idea of, wait, what if I make a Yiddish podcast, which also makes a lot of sense because reading is very intimidating to people who are learning Yiddish while listening is a, you know, a passive act and also an act that people don't get a lot of opportunity to do in Yiddish because there isn't any, there's very little Yiddish audiovisual media. You know, you have Yid Life Crisis and a few other things, but it's, it's limited. So that's where the idea came from. I'm also curious because you were talking about how you had several generations of your family in America. Was Yiddish a language that they were speaking for the most part? No, none of my grandparents have ever spoken Yiddish to me. My father's mother speaks a little bit of Yiddish, but she's forgotten pretty much all of it. So it did not come out of any desire to speak to grandparents or anything like that, which is probably why I was skeptical about it in the first place or skeptical about its relevance to me. But then when I started speaking it and hearing it, it felt like it was my language in a way that Hebrew never has felt, even though I have some degree of fluency in Hebrew and I enjoy speaking it like I enjoy speaking any language. Um, it didn't feel like home. Mm. I mean, can you talk a bit about what you think informs that feeling? I mean, part of it must have to do with the fact that the people who speak Yiddish in New York are such unique, fascinating people. Uh the kind of people who are attracted to Yiddish are always interesting because, you know, if you're the type of person who's going to say, why would I learn Yiddish? No one speaks it. Then then that's who you are. And that's fine. But the people who are like, no one speaks Yiddish and I want to learn it, then they have to be a little weird. Right. <laughs> that's kind of simplistic. But I feel like it, that's it, another it, great tagline, by the way. Yeah, I think I mean, like, I, I definitely agree. And yeah, I feel I like, we are, agree like we are implicated in that. There's a, a group of us here who uh, at various times have gotten together for Yiddish classes with uh, like an older Jewish mm -hmm. radical who teaches us. And, and the assembly of us is definitely I feel like we could all be described as weirdos <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And it's also, you know, where else do... Hasidim, ex-Hasidim, secular Jews, people who grew up in Zionist youth movements, and tons of GLBT folks come together. I don't know a place, but like Yiddish brings all those people together. So that sort of made it feel like home, first of all, just meeting a group of people that I could feel so close to so quickly. And then other ways, in other ways, I don't know if there's anything I can point to. It, it felt, um, it's pretty inexplicable, the feeling of hearing Yiddish and just feeling like it's yours and seeing in like Yiddish literature stories that felt relatable. Um, something that I learned in going to these Yiddish classes in Montreal was the way in which it was maligned by early stages of the Zionist movement where it was referred to as women's language and in a derisive tone. And so I'm, I'm interested in the connection between the feminist politics of your podcast, whether from, from your perspective, these are different aspects or, or political tendencies in your life that come together through you or whether you feel like they're inherently connected? Um, okay. So first thing about the mama Lushen idea, the fact that 
Yiddish would be women's language. That wasn't just something that Zionists believed. A lot of Yiddish speakers believed that, and a lot of Yiddish literature was was written for a female audience because women didn't have access to learning Lush and Koidesh. They didn't learn any ritual text. So that dates back before the Zionist movement, but it definitely comes from like masculum and people who wanted to bring Hebrew back into the everyday vernacular and create Hebrew literature. In terms of the connection for me, part of the connection was that Yiddish farm is an Orthodox space and I can visit an Orthodox synagogue and then leave the doors of an Orthodox synagogue and think, okay, that was that was that, and now I move on with my day. But when you're living in an Orthodox environment, egalitarianism becomes sort of more important if you believe in egalitarianism. And so my feminism and my interest in Yiddish sort of joined forces <laughs> at Yiddish Farm. I've been a feminist for a very long time. I think I probably started identifying as one when I was 13 years old and got introduced to Riot Girl music, which is what the first episode of Vibratech is about. Um, but never did it become so practical as when I was living in a situation that was Orthodox, but also it didn't just have to do with the Orthodox atmosphere. It's just a farm, you know, you divvy up work and gender is sort of everywhere in that, you know, who goes to the field, who works in the kitchen and I like cooking. So I was in the kitchen, but how does that make me feel as a feminist and, you know, whose work is worth more? these things come up when you're living and working all together. And I'm not blaming Yiddish farm for that, but that's just how a living environment, that's how it pans out. The other part was I just didn't want to make a podcast in Yiddish about Yiddish. Cause I think that's, you know, the death knell of any language is to have that sort of meta theme to anything. So I thought, okay, well, what's important to me? What would be an interesting podcast for me? If I'm going to be spending all my time on it, what's something I believe in and it felt really natural to think of it as a feminist podcast. Also because I really feel that there are fewer women involved in podcasting than men. A friend of mine who shall remain nameless because I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this podcast know her. She said something really funny to me last week. She's like, I feel like podcasts are the new terrain for mansplaining. And I thought that was kind of funny because, yeah, I mean, you hear women on NPR shows and on sort of bigger media outlets, but I don't know a lot of women who are doing podcasts on their own in their garage, you know, in the sort of Mark mm -hmm. Maron sort of way. So it feels like this might be the last question, but you've mentioned inhaling podcasts. Yeah. And I was wondering what the kind of most interesting new podcast you're listening to or what your favorite podcasts are. I don't know how, how you'd want to define a list, but oh what's, God, what's, really but like what's on your mind right now? Okay. This is what's on my mind right now. I really like this feminist podcast called Strong Opinions Loosely Held that comes out from Refi Refinery29. I, I'm i going to talk about the newer ones I like because they're... Oh, okay. No, I have to talk about this too. Okay. There's another podcast called The Heart that's all... Do you know about The Heart? I feel like... The Heart actually started at CQT, which is where we recorded our podcast. Right. Yes. So you know about So I love The Heart. And then I, you know, I love the classics like Death, Sex and Money and... I like WTF with Mark Maron, even though he drives me a little crazy, but I think some of his conversations are really, really good. And right now I'm into this podcast that is coming out of The Nation and WNYC in New York called The United States of Anxiety about the election. And hmm. it actually is all about my homeland, Long Island, and looks at Long Island as a microcosm for what is going on, like who are Trump supporters, why are Trump supporters. 
it's really good because at least in the beginning starts out with sort of trying to understand them with, I don't know, I guess a level of sympathy or real openness to, okay, who are you and why, why is this person speaking to you now after everything that's come out in the last week, they're getting a little frustrated and having troubles keeping that sense of openness, but it's a very good podcast and very of the now. And so folks can listen to the podcast on all their, all the regular podcast apps. It's on iTunes for now. And if you have any pod catchers, I guess it's called, there's an RSS feed available on our website. You can find it at vibratite.com. And also for people who are learning Yiddish at different various levels or people who maybe are a little bit older and grew up with Yiddish in the home, but haven't heard the language in a long time, we're now doing transcripts all in Yiddish, but transcripts that you can follow along with so that if you miss a word or it's going too fast, you can read it at the same time. And that's all volunteer based. So if anyone knows Yiddish and wants to get in on that transcript action, it's a lot of good Yiddish practice. Uh, well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Ah, Shanem Dunk. It was great. Esrogs, lemons, or limes? It's time for Shkayach. Back by popular demand. We have literally heard from no one about this. It's true. But it just kind of becomes a little bit of a shtick now, right? We're like, everyone likes Shkoyach. Um, yeah, I think that wave is over. I think the 15 minutes of fame that Shkoyach had is evaporated. Mm. So people, please send us affirmation at trafepodcast at gmail.com. Or sandpick at gmail.com. Yeah. For our more sonically enhanced listeners, wearing your fancy headphones, uh, you might notice that there are people talking behind us at times. And that is because CKOT's funding drive is in full effect. People coming in and out, a lot of live broadcasts going on. And our soundproof room is not soundproof because <laughs> the door is ajar. Yeah, there's, anyway, there's a lot of complications here at the station right now. We love you, CKOT. Uh, but again, if you go to ckot.ca, you can support the station. Even a dollar or two really goes a long way. Wow, David, you're going hard at this. I mean, funding drive comes but once a year, Sam. That is very true. So what's your Shkoyach for this week? Oh, okay. So my Shkoyach for this week goes to the Bureau Council of the Plateau within the city of Montreal uh, municipal structure. Heard about it before. Uh, that exists here uh, on occupied Kanegahaga territory. And specifically in reference to a grant that they increased recently. Have you, have you heard anything about something like this? Not in the least bit, Mr. Zuman. Okay, so for, for listeners who have never been to Montreal, don't really know a lot about the city, but, but listen to our show, you're probably familiar with the reference we make at the end of every episode where we refer to the giant cross of secularism yes. uh, that we're uh, in the shadow of. And what this literally refers to is there's a, the mountain called Montreal, which is just across the street from here. And apparently it's a dormant volcano. What? Yeah, this is a whole other discussion. Oh, man, we got going. a podcast about this. I've never heard of that. But on the top of this mountain, there is a giant cross. I, I'm sure, Sam, you could speak more to the origins of this thing. So one of the imperial wingdings who came here in the 1500s put a giant cross at the top of the mountain when he arrived. I believe it's Jacques Cartier. It might be Samuel Champlain. And, and it's still up there. It's, they light it up. They used to light it up for different colors. And it kind of looks like the 1970s a little bit. But in the 1970s, there was an artist wow, named... Wow, great tie-in, David. <laughs> ...named uh, Pierre Yot. He was part of a series of artists who had all these different installations, very, very close to where we are right now, actually, like near McGill University. And, <laughs> and um, he created this replica of the cross that was put on its side as if it had fallen off the mountain. 
this happened to coincide with the Olympics being hosted in Montreal, so the mayor ordered it destroyed. Lol. Yeah, they said it was indecent, it was an insult uh, to the values of Quebec, and this artist died in the 90s. Like, have you ever heard of this guy? Not at all. Uh, but anyway, he died. But, I, but I'm not really tapped into the art culture, you know? Yeah. He apparently is a pretty well-known artist here. So a bunch of artists got together recently. They're doing a retrospective of his work. And they got a big grant from the city, about $10,000, to recreate this thing. Actually pretty nearby, like just down the street. So you can kind of see the mountain. You see the cross on the top. And on the bottom, you see this destroyed cross <laughs> that has seemingly fallen off of it. But at the last minute, the mayor of the city got cold feet and said that he wasn't going to extend the funding anymore unless they moved it because it was going to be in front of some sort of nunnery and it was going to be offensive to the Christian values of those people huh. and and Quebecers. But it's up, isn't it? Yeah, so this is the reason for my Shkoyak is that at the end of the day, the city pulled their money, but the bureau camp, my understanding is that the bureau council of the plateau, as a result of this, increased their grant from $500 to 10000 to make up for the city. So it got put up after all. It's just uh, across the street in a different location. Tabernak. And so you're saying that basically the plateau, which is also now determining whether or not they're going to be allowing religious establishments to be opened again, is spending $10,000 to put up cross art? No, that's the Utrecht Borough Council. Apologies. Neighboring borough. And that's a very long, complicated story that I don't think we have time to get into. I don't think we have time to get into it either. Like, um, so who are you giving the shkoyak to exactly? The borough council, the plateau, who came to the rescue of this project and extended them the funding when the city funding was revoked. You're seeing this as some kind of revolutionary act? No, I just like the fact that when I bike down the street to the station now, I get to see a cross on its side at the base <laughs> of the mountain. <laughs> I think it ties into, you know, our shtick. It does, it does. So thanks, Plateau, uh, in spite of being uh, horrific. Wait, so David, do you think they listened to our Christmas episode? <laughs> they were inspired by our uh, gorilla antics of unplugging the lights on the cross? It's possible. And when I said our gorilla antics, I meant the royal hour, as in all of us, because who knows who really did it? I, I have no idea. No snitching. Uh, but Sam, what is your square for today? Okay, so I'm starting my shkoyach point first. I'm going to tell you straight up who gets the shkoyach, and we can unpack it from there. That sounds great. Great. So it goes to an article written by one Nathan Tempe. Uh, do you, who is that? No idea. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Nathan wrote an article in Gothamist.com. Okay. Do you know what Gothamist.com is? I don't really know a lot about it, but I've read articles on it. It's basically a website run kind of in the style of Gawker, but New York-focused, and usually has kind of in-depth reporting about New York pretty hipstery, I guess. I think you're uh, walking back on your point first style here. <laughs> it's very hard to beat old habits. So Nathan wrote an article about the anti-Kaporis actions that were happening in Crown Heights. Uh, I mean, this is a long thing. That, do you want to explain to people who aren't familiar with what Kaporite is? I feel like you might actually have a better ability to explain. But from what I understand, it is a ritual that happens around New Year's Yom Kippur time, mm -hmm. where certain factions of the Orthodox Jewish community take a chicken over their head and spin it in circles. Yeah, I think by the neck, no? Yes, by the neck. And there's some kind of transference of your sins to that chicken. Yeah, it's a pretty obscene ritual. They kill these animals and it's a torturous process. The community that I grew up in, most people would actually, there's different things you could like put in a bag and, and sort of have the same effect. David, we're getting there. It seems to be something that has drawn the ire of vegan animal rights activists. And it's kind of why I wanted to bring it up with you because... 
I thought, first of all, the article was really well done, and that's why I'm giving it Shkoyach, but I'm interested to kind of get your opinion of some of the points that were raised in the article. Oh, you've got it. I think we actually talked about this briefly in a previous Shkoyach. So but like a long time ago, yeah, no? Yeah, so this, this is a, 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 maybe this last year, probably around this time. What was it? A, what did we talk about? It was, we were talking about something else, and I think it reminded us of this, and okay. it was around the season. So and this is a nice uh, follow-up for uh, one year in. Yeah, okay, so there's a part of me that really doesn't love the practice of torturing a chicken by spinning it around in your head. You don't say. I mean, I do eat animals, unlike you, but I still feel like throwing a live chicken around your neck is not something that I would want to do on a day-to-day basis. It's reasonable. (laughs) But Nathan, firstly, so again, go to this article. There's some really interesting photos and videos of a lot of the protests that have been happening. And Nathan talks about one that was happening in L.A. There were 30 people protesting outside of... uh, some Jewish community center where this was happening. Um, There's actually a court case in California that's happening around it. And I guess what kind of drew my attention in this piece was some of the language that was being used by protesters. So there were signs that said things like animal holocaust, which seems like pretty standard for the vegan lexicon. There There was another sign that said like, you show no mercy, neither did Hitler. Oh, wow. So, and yeah, and there was also this really interesting protagonist in the piece, Arina Deich, or Deich, who was a member of the Satmar community, I believe, in New York and who had become a vegan and a nurse and an animal rights activist. So like she had a really interesting take as well. So I guess I, I wanted to talk with you about what kind of battles these activists are choosing and whether there's some weird kind of othering that's going on. Like I can't imagine all the vegans or animal rights activists are Jewish themselves. And there oh, feels yeah. like a weird targeting going on. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess this is the part of the show where I'm, I condemn liberal vegans, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the world of liberal animal rights activism. It, uh, fairly unfamiliar. I, I can say quite comfortably that I find it obscene. It's incredibly racist. It's incredibly misogynist. Like groups like PETA will go to the most far right extremes in trying to appeal to people or shock people into thinking about animals in some way. Like it is is horrifying. And in the language of holocaust is not unfamiliar to me but Mm. to be honest like it's it's part of a broader approach to this stuff that i I think is turns most people off understandably yeah i mean what was interesting is there was a brief mention to eid al-adha which is a muslim holiday where there is like a sacrificial killing of animals as well and i know that in quebec there are a bunch of militant anti-muslim activists who protest this kind of uh, well, yeah, Pegida well. had that march in a uh, small town, right? Exactly. So there's a part of me that like wants to kind of unpack or piece together or think about how these things relate because it's this weird targeting that just has a very uncomfortable underpinning, you know? Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying, but it's, I, I think the way that I usually see this unfold every year is that there's some people who are like, we don't like this, we want it to go away, and eventually it works its way up to some government official. And most of the time, to be honest, these government officials try to make it go away because it puts them in a very uncomfortable position. Because if they go after, it's usually Hasidic communities because they do this en masse. And you actually get to see these like disgusting amount of garbage bags get carted away full of chickens. And they do this sometimes in public places. Yeah, this was one of the big issues in the piece. And so I think the reason that there's a a sort of building outrage around this stuff is that every every year you see these politicians actively try to make this stuff disappear. They Mm. don't, they'll still, until the last minute, they're supporting legislation to ban it or everyone's on side to ban it. The legislation always ends up not being signed or going away. There's some deal cut. And it's just because, you know, that you have these large, especially in acidic communities, they're voting blocks. And if you're a politician, you don't want to piss off a huge voting block yeah, yeah, in, your, yeah. in your district. 
So it's just, it seems like they're locked in conflict. Mm. In conclusion, a square to Nathan Tempe at Gothamist. Uh, I feel an uncomfortableness and or anti-square to these protesters to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, while we're at it, let's just give a, a, a year-round, once a year, every year, anti-square to PETA, just because they're the worst. <laughs> Maybe they had no involvement with this. I don't care. Well, <laughs> fair enough. I think it's a good of a place to end as any. They're the worst. So that's our episode for today. 24th of Tishrei, 5777. Uh, again, please go to cqot.ca and donate if you can and if you feel like it makes sense for you to the funding drive they're doing right now to make sure this station continues as a station. Now, we've spared you thus far. However, we're at the outro period, and I think it's uh, time to bring up voice memos and positive reviews. Oh, yeah. If, uh, if there's anything that you'd like listeners of Trafe to hear, um, if there's things you want to share from your own interactions with the institutional Jewish community, just record it. If you have a smartphone, you can record it as a voice memo. And if you email it to trafepodcast at gmail.com, we'll put it on the show right at the beginning where we have the different music for a little bit. And there's a preferred amount of time for these clips? Yeah, about 30 seconds to a minute is ideal. 30 seconds is more ideal than a minute. Yeah. But is there anything uh, we have in store for people we should be uh, alerting to? Nothing personal, although I would like to give a shout out to Mark Gunnery for providing us with Jewish memes. Oh yeah, I saw those. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks Mark. If anyone else has Jewish memes, we'd love to get involved in that world. Particularly ones that are funny. (laughs) Those Simpsons ones were pretty great. Uh, For clarification, this is a a response to me saying that there are no funny Jewish memes, so prove me wrong, Jewish internet. Prove me wrong. (laughs) Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to our social media consultant, Kira Page. You can, it's funny, you can actually hear some background noise from the funding drive behind us. Um, Who else do we want to thank, David? Uh, thank you so much to Kanan O'Neill again for creating TravePodcast.com. Thank you to Sack Syndrome and SoCal for the music that you heard in this episode. Thank you to C. Lavery for the new poster design that you'll be hopefully soon seeing around Montreal and Toronto. And thank you to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design. I don't think we mentioned that our show is recorded at CQT 90.3 FM in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Gunnagaga territory. Um, but follow us on the social medias and donate to CQT if you're able to. And I think we'll have a new episode soon. Yeah, so see you in about two weeks. I mean, this is Jews exist in all states as a minority, and we will be involved in the overthrowing of all of them, hopefully. You know, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yep, that one's going in. Delicious, delicious water. I told someone the other day, I think it's one of my best qualities that I drink so much water. You know, like I think it actually. <laughs> I think it helps me in the long run. It's like keeping me healthy. I just think there's like a lot of qualities, like liking water this much. What about when you, what about sleeping? I'm not good at sleeping. I'm David. Oh, <laughs> I actually didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> what?